Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Believe it or not, I once received a note from this group that's on Facebook. It's actually a group. You can find them there on Facebook. They're called Goat Lovers. And they were upset uh, with Jesus' story that was read this morning. I explained to them, first of all, I didn't write it. And secondly, I told them, the goats were not intended to be the bad guys in this story. You see, in the time of Jesus, a, a shepherd would separate sheep from goats in the evening because goat need, goats needed a little bit more protection from the chill than do the sheep. And that is to say, Jesus is simply trying to give a picture of separating things into two groups. It's not a story about goats or about sheep, nor is it meant to stir up passionate goat lovers. And that ended the controversy of picking on goats, a great saga in my ministry. So let's get at what was really on Jesus' mind that day. Sitting in a private session as he was, he got his, he's got his inner circle gathered around him, and they were asking about the end times. They had some questions. And in the prior verses in Matthew's Gospel, we listened to Jesus responding to those questions with a whole group of stories. You got the story of the bags of gold. We have the story of the ten virgins lying in the darkness waiting for their bridegroom. We have the story about the fig tree. We have the story that talks about the persecution and the hate and the suffering of those who are part of the kingdom, of those who follow Jesus. Stories about the destruction of the temple and eventually about the end of the world. And the whole conversation, if if you were to go and track it as Matthew tells it, takes place just a couple of days before Jesus' own end times. The events we call Holy Week. Now certainly Jesus' mind, not the mind of the disciples, but Jesus' mind was certainly occupied on what lie ahead of Him. Almost intuitively, it seems, His closest disciples and his friends and his followers were also all thinking about death and dying and the end of things as they knew them. Now maybe this private chat Jesus was having with his friends finds you able and willing to at least for a few moments think about such things. I can honestly say that it seems like this fall, a lot of us, a lot of you, have been saying a lot of goodbyes. This fall we've sent home some great saints, people who blessed and enriched our lives, people we loved and cherished, 
folks who've impacted our lives and even the whole world in some significant ways. And some of those goodbyes we've hosted here and some of them you've traveled to. The opportunity to consider that day when all is said and done. When it all ends for us or when the world as we know it ends, whichever of those comes first. It's a gift, really. It helps us consider the value of each day and just what's important in this life. Every ache and pain that I have in my 60-something body and each barely survivable loss that happens in my life these days seems to remind me that this life is just not going to go on forever. You and I know it. This is a moment we can think about it. The fact that life is precious. Each day is precious. The reason this story about sheep and goats catches our attention a little bit this morning is because it's meant to stop us dead on our tracks and remind us of something of great importance. And that is this. That life will end. That the world will end. That the King of the universe the God who hung the stars in the sky and set the planets in motion and put into being all of creation, that King will one day return. And what we've done or not done somehow matters. We're also blessed to be reminded that the one who returns to judge on the basis of who paid attention to those in need and distress, has also revealed himself as one who comes in love and comes with mercy and comes with grace. Thank God for that. Now this, I would think, is good news for you and for me. Since we all foul this love and mercy thing up to varying degrees at different times in our lives, And there's more good news that comes with these somber reminders. Apparently, there's still more time. At least it hasn't happened yet. There's time to be more. There's time to do more. We can do better. How much time? We want to know. It's not ours to know, Jesus said. What will the end be like? up to God. How will, we, how will we fare, you and I? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm banking on the promises of Jesus. So what's apparently important is that all this transpires in God's time, when God is good and ready, and that we don't have all the time in the world. Jesus kind of meant to impress upon his followers, there's a sense of urgency about getting out there and doing the business of the gospel in the world. To be about the business of serving the most vulnerable and the needy 
and the at-risk folks in the world that Christ died to save. I was thinking about that this week. I was remembering that when I was growing up, there were at least three questions that I heard from adults very often. The first question was this. What do you want to be when you grow up? The second question went along with the phrase, put that thing down. The question was, do you want to poke out someone's eyes with that? Third question was this. Just what do you think you're doing? My immediate answer to that last question was an emphatic, nothing. Which may or may not have been true. Most of the time, it wasn't true. But I wondered why adults got mad anyways when I just announced to them that I was doing nothing. I looked at them like, what's your problem? Nothing. Now as a long-in-the-tooth adult, I still wonder this. Do you really have to answer for doing nothing? (laughs) And today's story from Jesus responds with an answer to that question. And the response is this, a resounding yes. We have to answer even for doing nothing. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was away from home. You gave me no welcome. I was naked. You gave me no clothing. I was ill and in prison. You didn't come to me. You didn't comfort me. In other words, what did you do? Nothing. Not that assault and robbery are okay as long as you look around for thirsty people and toss them a Coke or something. But you see, we sin not only against God. We not only wrong God or grieve God or disobey God by doing wrong things, but also by not doing the right things. And it's still a pretty valid list, isn't it? I mean, you'd have to close your eyes. You'd have to walk and drive with blinders on and turn off the news and put down the paper to not encounter human need. It's all around us. Hunger and thirst and war, victims, prisoners released or just heading there, the ill, the physically, mentally ill, those with no clothes, those with no shelter. I see it every day. I hear about it every day. Maybe we could even update the list in case you haven't quite caught the fever of Jesus' story yet. How about if we rewrite this to sound something like this? I was being picked on and gossiped about and bullied, and you did nothing to defend me. I had a hard time making friends. And you didn't include me. I was headed for disaster with my bad decisions. And you just laughed at my self 
destructive behavior. I was discouraged. And you just told me to buck up. Get over it. And if we still close our eyes, if we're still clinging tightly to our egos, tell us we're really pretty decent folks here. We're doing a pretty good job out there in the world for Christ's sake. If we're still hanging on to our wallets and the way things are, we simply, sadly, will miss seeing Jesus. That's the truth of this story. Folks, there's a world of hurt out there. And some in here. A big part of our movement collectively as God's people called the Neighborhood Church is to do something about it. Next week we're going to have a guest teacher in here after worship. and I think it starts at 1130 over in the fellowship hall, Jack Jezreel. And he'll be challenging us to put our faith to work and to discover ways to integrate our faith with the way we live every day. Now, at the very least, here at this church, we're at least trying to have us keep our eyes open, wide open to human need and to try and make in some small ways a dent in it. Not because we're concerned about being a sheep or a goat or because we're worried about getting in or out of the kingdom, but because Jesus tells us that it matters. What we do, whatever we propose to do as a church, from buildings and grounds to utilities to programming, to the money we give to outside groups who do God's good work out in the world, to music and worship, to public events, to the way we staff. All of it is an attempt to serve alongside of Jesus just a little bit better. It's to see Jesus, in fact. Now, honestly, we have lots, don't we, you and I? We have lots, hours, we have abilities, we have dollars. And it's very human to hang on with a death grip to everything we have, to preserve it, to make use of it the way we want to use it. In fact, in a recently published survey of American Christians, here's a couple interesting things to think about. More than one out of four American Christians give away absolutely no money at all. One out of four. The median annual giving for an American Christian is actually $200 a year. One half of a percent of after-tax income. And the research also showed that people who consider themselves committed American Christians, highly committed American Christians who say their faith is very important to them and they attend church at least two times a month. They earn more than $2.5 trillion a year collectively. Think about that. So if 
active Christians gave away a tithe, 10%, pre-tax or after tax, it doesn't matter how you measure it, if took the earnings and gave 10%, we active Christians would contribute an additional $46 billion for Jesus' ministry in the world. That is staggering. Think about that. Jesus' end time stories, I don't know, they get to me. They cause us to consider what's most important for this time between now and whenever your life or the world ends. I'm with you. It bothers me. Because it calls into question my giving. It calls into question my spending, the way I serve, and the way I move through God's world. As author Annie Lamott, who's one of my favorites, by the way, recently wrote, she said this, and I agree with her. She took the words right out of my mouth. She said, when I was 35, I knew everything. Now that I'm 69, I know something much more. I know that Christ has died. I know that Christ is risen. I know that Christ will come again. And I know that Jesus loves you and me. The Bible tells me so. Those of us who believe this stuff, we also believe that Christ is still hungry and thirsty, naked and ill, lonely, is a stranger in our midst, a prisoner in our jails, and that time's wasting. If we want to see Jesus now, not just at the end of time, we simply need to open our eyes, look around us, open our hearts and wallets to human need. We won't do it perfectly as individuals or as a congregation, but surely we can do better. We can do more. Simply put, the story challenges us to do more. Amen. Glory be to you, Heavenly Father, through Christ our Lord, who with the Holy Spirit reigns eternally, one God, now and always. Amen.